are the people I truly serve. Salmons, this is Year Zero. Today, Justin O'Donnell. Justin O'Donnell is a libertarian activist and a former Senate candidate, I believe, from New Hampshire. He uh, has a pretty interesting story, given he worked for FEMA at one point and he lives exclusively, or for the most part, on crypto. But first, RyanBunting.com. For all of your graphic design needs, go to RyanBunting.com. Ryan Bunting is a fair, or mediocre, libertarian and anarcho-capitalist, but he's a badass graphic designer. So... Go to RyanBunting.com for all of your graphic design needs. As always, thank you, Tom Burton, for the music. Okay, I'm here with Justin O'Donnell. What's going on, man? Not much. What's going on with you? Thanks for having me. I appreciate you coming on. Uh, I've I've been binging on some of your interviews over the last year, so I can make sure I can separate your Twitter personality from your actual personality. Well, I mean, the Twitter personality is just the, uh, me when I get angry and have a keyboard in front of me. So there's (laughs) (laughs) not terribly much of a difference there. (laughs) You know, one of the, one of the things I found interesting that you talk, talk about a lot in your, in the podcast appearances I've heard you on is, um, how up in New Hampshire y'all are, y'all are already, ahead of the curb as far as using uh, cryptocurrencies to, to you know, survive and to, to pay your bills, to live your life. And I, I kind of wanted to talk about that a little bit just to start off with. Um, that, that I really think is just a side, pro- side product of uh, the Free State Project and their migration and um, what they've been doing to bring all the libertarians they can to New Hampshire. Not necessarily in a political sense. We get a lot of anarchists and agorists, people who think voting is violent, so it doesn't really help with what we're trying to do politically. But people who've embraced cryptocurrency from the very beginning, um, early on in the history of Bitcoin, one of the first places you were able to purchase Bitcoin was Porkfest and Liberty Forum. Uh, where Ian Freeman of Free Talk Live had his ATM out there and he was selling Bitcoin uh, for 12 to $20 a Bitcoin. Yeah, that, that's that's really cool. Now, he was one of the ones that were got caught up in that bust earlier this year, right? What was that, like two months ago? Yeah, the Crypto Six, they're trying to hit him with kingpin charges for money laundering. Uh, something like $10 million over the course of the past 10 years uh, with crypto. Um, just for trading, engaging in daily exchange. People gave him dollars because they wanted crypto or gave him crypto because they wanted dollars and he happened to have them. Yeah. When, uh, when one of the other people that, uh, the the woman that uh, ran for sheriff as a Republican? Aria. Uh, yeah. yeah. Uh, Aria, she's the... Uh, 
high priestess of the reformed satanic church and she's transgender so she thought it'd be fun to troll the republicans uh won the primary because nobody else filed and so ended up being the republican candidate for sheriff uh and it angered the republicans so bad they spent a lot of money campaigning against her that's funny man i I saw that (laughs) a friend of mine shared that with me and i about died laughing yeah Uh, i was like all you got to do is put the r by your name and all of a sudden you're you're good to roll yeah, uh, that really is an unfortunate state of politics everywhere. But again, one of the beauties of New Hampshire is there's been so many people that have moved that don't give two shits about politics, don't give two flying fucks about the regulations. That if you're plugged into the anarchist community, into the libertarian community, you can find a market day. You can find a bunch of people homeschooling their kids uh, together and basically running their own school off the grid. Mm-hmm. Um, we have monthly market days right here in Manchester where nobody pulls business permits. Nobody's doing anything. We get our meat deliveries in a CSA fresh from the farm and the farmer takes gold, silver, and cryptocurrency as forms of payment. Yeah. Uh, you were the, you're one of the uh, <laughs> few people I've heard advocating also um, the Utah gold bags, which I had heard about them a while back, but I never really looked into them. And then I heard you talking about them and I was like, I really need to look into that. <laughs> They're about to launch the line. I think they might have yet. Honestly, Ian Freeman was the one leading the way with adoption and trying to push those. So it's kind of stalled with uh, him in prison now. But the New Hampshire goldbacks, the same people that were making the Utah goldbacks, uh, were pushing out a line of New Hampshire goldbacks as well. Uh, I, and, I actually saw some of them, yeah. Yeah, and Ian was going to start the local push about getting businesses to start accepting them. Yeah, I saw um, J.M. J. Bouillon is uh one of the places that it is selling them and that's uh one of the places i've been told is a good place to get silver and stuff like that so i kind of keep track of what they're doing and i i saw the new hampshire goldbacks on there which i thought was really interesting yeah i recommend if you want to get new hampshire goldbacks or utah goldbacks not to buy them through um the brokers the silver and gold brokers uh but to buy them directly from upmc the utah precious metals yeah whatever they are that makes them they sell them at spot like they, oh, okay. they sell at spot. You just got to have an account with them. Oh, okay. Okay. I'll have to check that out. I haven't, I haven't found that website yet. I don't guess. So. Yeah. But they're, they're not as widely accepted. Um, like, honestly, I find it easier to spend crypto. I find it easier to use Bitcoin cash. Um, there's restaurants in my neighborhood that take Bitcoin, Bitcoin cash. My landlord takes Bitcoin cash for rent. My, yeah. Um, my, the social club I'm a member of takes Bitcoin cash for membership dues. Um, it's just so easy to do everything in crypto that I don't need to worry about that. Um, but a couple of years ago, everyone started having the, well, what if they turn off the internet on us? <laughs> what if, they, what if they launch a nuke? Well, guess you got to start getting your gold together. Um, yeah. and the goldbacks present a really interesting solution to the problem of spendable gold. Right. Because an ounce of gold isn't spendable. An ounce of gold is a great store of value. But how do I get change for an ounce of gold when I'm trying to buy a cheeseburger? Yeah. And there was that <laughs> there was that card I had seen a while back. I think Glenn Beck was pushing it. It's the size of a credit card. And it's, you know, like $500 worth of gold or something like that. And you just break a piece off of it, which is an interesting concept. But then since then, now you have the goldbacks coming out. And, you know, they're as maneuverable as any cash you carry on you. 
So right, fit right in your wallet. They fold, they bend, and it's three dollars worth of gold. Right, which is really convenient. You know, you'll uh, it, it, it make it, it makes it affordable for your average person too, where you're not looking at the price of gold, going, "I'm never going to get an ounce of fucking gold." I'm just, <laughs> it's just not going to happen. <laughs> you know. So well, I, I mean, that's all. All gold is is a store of value. Right. Um, it's not spendable and. It, it makes a great allegory to point out, like, that's the problem with Bitcoin right now. Uh, Bitcoin has become a store of value that you can't spend or use anywhere because it's too expensive and too hard to make change for or to manipulate with. And the fees prohibit expenditure. OK, so gold solved the problem with the gold backs. Uh, but the reality is silver is the more spendable metal currency mm-hmm. at $25 an ounce of silver. An ounce of silver is good to go. You can do a lot of stuff with an ounce of silver. Right. Um, you can do even more with a tenth of an ounce of silver. Just being able to throw it out uh, to make your payments. Um, but Bitcoin Cash really is that for the crypto community. Uh, and a large part of what I've done, I guess, that's my Twitter personality is my real personality. is <laughs> just been evangelizing Bitcoin Cash on social media lately, uh, trying to up adoption with Bitcoin Cash and working with people um, like alongside like people like George Donnelly, JT Freeman, uh, Bo Davis, people who are put, working on actual adoption of Bitcoin Cash as a world currency uh, outside of New Hampshire and in New Hampshire. Um, so if you look at the map of adoption rates and where Bitcoin Cash is catching on as a daily use currency, um, New Hampshire is just a tiny little dot. South America is a bunch of big giant dots. Mm-hmm. For people who don't have access to banking and don't have access to uh, reliable social infrastructure are relying on uh, the cryptocurrency alternatives and Bitcoin Cash is really showing to be the functional alternative. Yeah. And every maximalist just shut off the podcast. <laughs> well, so th- that's the thing I don't get about Bitcoin maximalism. Um, Bitcoin maximalists will be the first to tell you that Bitcoin is a store of value, not a currency that you shouldn't be spending Bitcoin. Okay, so get some Bitcoin cash to spend. Right. Like, I'm not out here, I'm not gonna be a Bitcoin cash maximalist because I think there's room in the crypto environment for every crypto. Bitcoin is gold. Bitcoin is digital gold. It is a store of value. Not everybody's ever gonna be able to get into it because it's inaccessible to people who can't justify the initial investment. Right. But Bitcoin cash is cash. I don't know anybody who has gold that doesn't also have cash. Yeah. I know plenty of people who have cash who can't get their hands on gold. Right. So to me, the Bitcoin maximalism doesn't make any sense. The Bitcoin maximalists should be the first ones lining up to get other cash currencies to justify why Bitcoin is the gold standard. I think that's a, I think it's all a symptom of autism. Well, that's all libertarianism. Yeah, yeah. It, it, <laughs> well, you brought it up earlier when yeah. you were when you were talking about the the anarchists and the agorists that have moved to New Hampshire, you know, and don't want anything to do with politics. And and you yep. you've been seeing that quite a bit lately online. <clears throat> and I live my life like an agorist. That's what I consider myself. I mean, I feel like before I have any right to go out there and evangelize to anybody else about anything, I should be taking care of myself, have myself in order and take care of my family. That's my number one priority. But, uh, but it, 
that what comes with that responsibility of agorism, then then you can go out and you can show others how they can live their life freely if they want to live their life freely, right? So it, it's part of the responsibility. And I see the Libertarian Party, whether it's on a national level or a local level, as a tool for that, as, as a way that, unfortunately, we live in a time when politics is sports. It, that's all it is. It's sports right. and entertainment for for stupid people. And so it's almost necessary to be involved in that in some way, shape or form if you're trying to create a freer future for yourself. Because if I'm not mistaken, you're an anarchist at heart, really. But Absolutely. you do, but you operate within the political spectrum. I have. And to be perfectly honest, I don't plan to run for office again. Um, I've, I've done my time. I've paid my dues. Um, there's arguments to be made that I've been the most successful federal and statewide candidate in the libertarian push in New Hampshire. Um, but it it really wears on you. It grates you. It wears you down. It's a terribly toxic system to be in. And the toxicity that's inherent in politics, libertarians aren't immune from. Um, you know, what I have started to notice and what I think is a really fundamental problem with the Libertarian Party and it's something I'm working on addressing locally and trying to fix within the local Libertarian Party is a culture of hero worship and a culture of, haha, I got mine. And it's people who care more about titles and care more about seeing fighting a fight than actually winning the fight they're fighting. Whereas then I look at the agorists and the anarchists and the people in my community who are going about their daily lives who don't give two shits who wins the election. They care about whether or not their kids are going to get through the school day and how they're going to put food on their table without government involvement. And people who are actually building infrastructure uh, and building communities around the idea of community reliance outside of government action, where to us, it really doesn't matter what's going on. I know people who haven't worn a mask in a year, um, yet we somehow still get groceries, still have potluck dinners, still have all sorts of uh, community events. We never shut down our community center. Our community center on any given Friday night last summer, we were having weekly potlucks and we'd have 40, 50 people show up at the height of the pandemic. No one ever got sick um, because people, and when somebody did get sick, it was so minor that people didn't care because we took care of each other um, as a community ought. Uh, we weren't relying on government. We weren't begging for help. And we weren't begging for the government to shut down everything to protect us. We were going about our lives and protecting our lives. Yeah. And I think the future, the libertarian future, isn't necessarily going to come through politics. I think it's going to come through culture. And I think it's going to be the agorists, the anarchists, the voluntarists, people who just live their lives and are seen living their lives that are going to show people it's possible. Um, the political arm, the Libertarian Party, is so focused on just waiting for critical mass that it, it's they're fighting a losing battle. And I'm, I'm not saying it shouldn't be fought. I'm just taking a step back from it myself to try and evaluate how it should be fought. Right. Yeah. You got almost try to have gotta have to try to figure out a way to square that circle between the factions. You know, and, and whether or not it can ever be squared, if, if, the, right. if the if the agorists or the anarchists will ever say, stop calling libertarian party members, you know, tyrants and, and violent, <laughs> and, you know, and if the libertarian party members will ever 
ever step back and say, you know, we can use this platform that we have, what, what platform we have, we can use to teach agorism. We can use it to teach the principles of anarchy and, and how to live free in an unfree world, you know, to steal, steal from Harry Brown. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I think the two working together in that, in that capacity could actually make a huge difference. And I remember a few years ago, the Libertarian Party Mises Caucus had put out a poll on their Facebook group. And where would you like to see the Libertarian Party Mises Caucus go from here? And I was like, I want to see your website become the next renegade university teaching agorism to to normies out there. You know, like, I don't know if you're familiar with renegade university, Thaddeus Russell's uh, university, but but he he runs a bunch of like university style courses that that aren't approved by the state and you get credits and he holds events and things like that. And so I was like, that's where I want to see the the Libertarian Party go. That's where I want to see the Mises Caucus go into teaching how to utilize these principles in a day to day life instead of focusing solely on attempting to win political races. See, I appreciate the hell out of that. But at the same time, an organization that's doing that kind of stuff, I have to ask, why are you calling yourself a caucus? Why are you? Why are you organizing yourself as a political action committee? And why are you raising and spending money on internal elections to the party um, if that's the kind of approach you're going to have? And I'm not necessarily saying they shouldn't have that kind of approach because at this juncture, I feel like that kind of approach is more effective. But the leadership of the Mises Caucus is more hyper-focused on just taking over the LP and then what? They, They don't have a plan for then what? Um, right now, the biggest complaint that people have about the Prags that run the LP, it, my biggest complaint, is that we got one state rep elected in this past election, but it took the combined total resources of the entire national party to do that. Hundreds of thousands of dollars spent, tens of thousands of volunteer man hours spent on one campaign to beat an incumbent who spent $200 and didn't advertise. And the incumbent still got 49% of the vote. Mm-hmm. So if that's what we're taking over, something with such poor name recognition, such poor infrastructure that we have to spend outspend hundreds of thousands of dollars to one just to be in the picture, why are we bothering? We need to I want to see the Libertarian Party as a whole, all the caucuses included, realize that we're only running the federal races for ballot access. That we only need to maintain enough credibility and enough visibility in those races to keep ourselves on the ballot and in the mind of people. Well, our caucuses should be out recruiting candidates along their ideological lines to run for school boards, to run for budget committees, to run for conservation committees, to run for the uh, trustee of the library. We're going to local nonpartisan offices that actually have an impact on people's daily lives, where we can show proof of concept of libertarianism working to benefit people's lives in management of government. And then from there, we will inevitably grow to the point where the person who stood on the school board for five years is now all of a sudden being considered as a state rep because they have the name recognition and the people respect them for what they've done. Not because the national party is going to waste $200,000 uh, flooding their district with millers and sacrificing ballot access in five other states. Mm-hmm. Um, and the biggest problem with the Mises caucus right now 
is I think the caucus on a national level, and again, I don't throw out the baby with the bathwater. Uh, the New Hampshire Libertarian Party Mises Caucus is some of the greatest guys I, I've ever met. Um, incredibly well involved. Uh, I've never had a problem with them. And I like to separate them. Like locally, they do amazing stuff. But the organization on the national level, all they care about is taking over. But they're taking over something that's broken without a plan to fix it. And their website says we're we want to see libertarianism pushed as a push to preach austrian economics yet most of the mises caucus members i talked to don't know the first thing about austrian economics <laughs> um they couldn't tell you what their favorite mises writing is because they've never read it and they don't know anything about how the party is structured and how the party works before they want to take it over right. and i think those are serious flaws of uh, ideation and goal setting and it doesn't just affect the Mises caucus uh, I, 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 it's a joke my friend AJ Olden made the joke you want to confuse a Mises caucus member ask them what their favorite Mises book is if you want to confuse a radical ask them what their favorite Rothbard book is because most of these people are ascribing to ideology based caucuses with no understanding of the ideology they, they purport and so they don't push the ideology; they just push organization. Well, is that isn't that just part and parcel with politics in general? I mean, if you talk to the, yeah, if you talk to the <laughs> average Republican, they don't know anything about Republicanism. I mean, you know, right. yeah. so so it, it's just I, uh, I mean, same goes with Democrats. I mean, if you if you talk to the average Democrat on the street, they couldn't tell you what biden's plan for anything is they don't know what the hell they're talking about you know they've but never they read tell any... you what the democratic principles are that's the difference and, and, and that again it's the flip side of the problem it's the far too extreme of where i want to go um is because now the, the parties have become so well known for their ideology that when they run candidates who don't uphold their ideology their members don't know yeah so like the democrats stand for the working man benefits wages health care okay but then you elected somebody who spends trillions of dollars on corporate bailouts bombs the middle east and locks up children in a detention center in texas even though those are all the things you voted against trump for yeah 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 exactly and that, that's kind of what i'm saying and like that yeah. just that just goes part and parcel with politics you're never going to have the every man on the ground that's going to know every every intimate detail and and so it's it's almost up to the leaders of the caucus uh, uh whether it's the radical caucus which i'm not familiar with them i've never met any of those guys i've never talked to any of those guys i thought all the rothbardians were in the mises caucus um and, and so uh well, think about that what are the rothbardians doing in the mises caucus well rothbard <laughs> learned from mises i mean that's and then wrote a whole bunch of stuff about how mises was wrong yeah yeah, <laughs> but I, I mean, I came from, I came from, I read the only Mises I ever read was History and Theory, and I love that book. I think it's a great book, and um, but it, I read a lot more Rothbard, and and that's what, and I ran into the Mises Caucus because of people like Pete Quinones and Scott Horton, right. and I know these guys, and so they were like talking about the Mises Caucus. I was like, okay. And then I ran into Samuel Edward Conkin and I was just like, okay, yeah, y'all do y'all's thing. But see, I'm not one of those guys that like, like you said, throws the baby out with the bathwater. I'm not like sitting there going, yeah. well, 
agorism and the counter-economic strategy for revolution is the only way that you're going to defeat the state. And we have all these, you know, you look at the Soviet Union, you can look at Pol Pot's, you know, problems he had. And, and you, you can look at all these authoritarian regimes that have been crumbled by the gray market and the black market over history. Okay, I get that. But how do you introduce people to the ideas of agorism. Yeah, you got these people that are naturally acting in that way. Like I was acting in an agorist fashion before I knew what agorism was, and I didn't have a clue as to the philosophy or what I was doing, you know, as far as taking down the state. I was just trying to survive, you know? Right. So it, when you're introducing people to those philosophies, I don't see a problem with people using politics in order to get people there because once you start down this road, of discovery and and the philosophy and the theory and your reading and you're trying to figure out how to apply it to your life and how to live as free as possible in this world that we live in at this point in time you're going to run into the agorist philosophy right and but i think in order to get to that point where our politics is acting as a teaching mechanism our candidates need to stop running on shit that's just we're not republicans we're not democrats Okay, well, what the fuck are you? Right. <laughs> like, break it down, because uh, back to the point, like, your average dem your average person has an understanding of what a Democrat is and what a Republican is. <clears throat> your average person has no understanding of what a Libertarian is. Mm -hmm. And I think an inherent part of that is, throughout our history, our highest profile candidates have been people who ran on not them instead of yes, me. Yeah. Yeah. And so... Okay, so when it, whenever you're looking at this, and I mean, I'm kind of going to put you, put you on the spot here, but let's like measure who's available to run in in 2024. Like, what are we looking at? We're looking at a potential Dave Smith run, which I think is probably going to happen. You have Justin Amash, who a lot of people like and are excited about. Um, maybe Spike Cohen, who uh, I thought would have been a better presidential candidate than Joe Jorgensen in 2020 just because of his messaging i thought he was he was clearer on messaging i thought the way he communicated was better personally um so so what do you what do you think you're looking at as far as the landscape between now and 2024 when you're moving into that and and who do you think has the best way of approaching it um from a libertarian standpoint regardless of who it is regardless of how they're approaching it the biggest problem is that right now none of them are acting like they're considering it and, and, and like even even republicans the republicans who are considering running are already posturing they're already putting together teams to do opposition research on each other they're already quietly fundraising they're already uh, selecting people for teams in the event they decide to run they're just waiting for the midterms to announce it libertarians and jess mears did a fantastic presentation at the of this at a convention a while back i watched historically the earlier a libertarian starts running the less votes they get at our convention. And she brought up all the data to point it out that at our conventions over the last 20 years, it was always somebody who entered the race virtually last minute who did the best. The people who had the longest running campaigns did the worst and were among the first out. And I think that is a problem of activist burnout. It's a problem of the, a lot of the people who do announce early are so high on themselves 
that they can't put together a functional campaign because it's all about them. It's not about the movement, the mission, the party, or the ideology. And we run into things where the, things just fall apart. People drift away. What we really need is for people, our presidential hopefuls, people who think they're going to have a chance to run for president, to start acting like it. Like if Dave Smith is considering running for president, he should be acting like it. He should be doing more guest appearances on shows other than his own. He should be going out of his way to talk about that possibility as often as possible. He should be doing open commentary, writing letters to the editor. He should be quietly fundraising. He should be lining up pledges. Hey, hey, don't write the month check yet. We don't have a committee yet, but I need you on the hook for $5,000. I need you on the hook for $5,000. I need you on the hook for $5,000 to be able to launch with two million in the bank if just uh, justin amash i'm not sure what he's doing behind the scenes i don't know if he is quietly fundraising i've gotten the picture that he is putting a team together that uh, the, that he is doing all of the correct things behind the scenes to have a functional campaign but he's not campaigning to libertarians um i haven't heard shit from him Right. <laughs> uh, well, he has, he's not doing the podcast circuit. He's he's touring conventions and unfortunately doing so by Zoom most of the time. And I, I love Justin Amash personally, and I will say he was a very unengaging and boring speaker to see at my state convention via Zoom, where he couldn't interact with the crowd and he just lost it and started droning on. People started filing out of the room on him, but he couldn't see that happening. Um, we, we, need, we need to have people who are considering running, people who are being considered to be drafted to run, start acting like it in a traditional time frame to build an infrastructure that's ready to support their announcement. And beyond that, I think Dave would be a great messenger, but would have a fraction of the reach that Justin Amash has. Um, I think Amash would have, would have the best reach we've ever seen as a candidate, but he's really light on messaging and really wishy-washy on principle. And it's going to be another one of those don't uh, vote for not them instead of vote for me. Right. Um, ideally, I would like to see something like maybe Amash Smith or Amash Cohen as the ticket. Um, I think Spike has gotten a lot better, uh, but the problem with Spike was... He ran in 20, uh, 2020. Nobody knew who the hell he was. Yeah. Joe Jorgensen at least had a resume. Spike was a podcaster with a blog. Um, but if we had run Spike at the top of our ticket in 2020, we wouldn't have even gotten a half the newspaper coverage that Joe got, and she barely got any. Right. Um, so his great messaging would have been heard by nobody. And that's yeah. the unfortunate part. And yeah, I think- no, I, I feel you. I didn't know who he was either until I happened to tune in to one of the vice presidential debates. That, and that's that's when I found out right. who he was. So, you know, and then the next time I heard his name, he was the vice presidential candidate. And I was like, oh, OK, you know. Well, so, it, it kind of bothered me a little bit how he got the vice presidential ticket. Um, again, he, his popularity and his name recognition has surged because he got it. But beforehand, nobody knew who he was except the people who were campaigning for Vermin, uh, the people who recruited him, the people yeah. who knew him personally. It wasn't that big of a crowd. The campaign point was, well, he's a media expert. He's a social media and advertising expert with a huge reach. 
I'm like, oh, that all sounds like a good a good thing to have on the team. And then I went and looked at his Twitter account, and he had half as many followers as I did, and his podcast had half as many average views as me just randomly going live on Facebook. And I'm like, and I am not good at managing social media. If he's doing this as a profession, <laughs> <laughs> there's something wrong up there. Right. Yeah. I feel you. So when you're when you're when you're looking at the the political landscape, like I I don't even if I were going to come out and support any of these candidates, which I, I'm not going to I'm not going to bash any of them, but I don't I can't say that I'm physically going to do anything. Being a truck driver number one makes it extremely difficult to be involved in anything, <laughs> you know, because I never know when when I'm going to be home and how long I'm going to be home, and when I am, I have nine acres I got to handle. And so it's like I get a day a week to, to fuck around with nine acres and, and hang out with my wife. It's it's not it's not a whole lot of fun. But so when you're looking at at this, what do you think the the most realistic expectations of uh, a candidate that is running nationally on the Libertarian Party ticket? I don't think it's an unwinnable race. Um, I don't think running nationally is an unwinnable race for presidency. I think running for U.S. Congress or U.S. Senate in most states is an unwinnable race. Um, but those are really important races to run because they have, they're the races with the visibility. They're the races people look to for messaging. They're the races that keep or lose ballot access. That's why it's important to run them. I don't think it's out of the realm of possibility for an insurgent presidential campaign to catch fire and win. Um, it, you need, you need a combination of the right candidate in all three parties, um, the right team behind them, the right money behind them, um, and the right game plan as well as circumstantial popular support. I mean, Ross Perot pulling 20 plus percent as a nobody, didn't come out of nowhere. That right. came with a lot of meticulous planning and behind the scenes work. Um, and it's not that we don't know how to do the work. It's just, I don't think we've had the groundswell moment of libertarianism yet, where what our candidate is preaching and our candidate being a outspoken enough or a uh, enthusiastic enough speaker to capture the attention of people with what they're speaking develops groundswell support outside of her own ranks. Um, but it, it, the presidential race to me is one that I firmly believe is a lot of in the moment decisions and groundswell support. And um, I don't think people are nearly as partisan at higher level races as the media and ourselves make them out to be. Um, and I look at races like like Maine, Biden wins Maine in a landslide. Biden wins New Hampshire in a landslide. But Suzanne Collins is reelected as a Republican in a landslide in Maine. And Chris Sununu is reelected as governor in a landslide in New Hampshire. 100,000 people voted for the Republican governor and the Democrat president. Yeah. Uh, like people actually pay attention to who they like at the moment. And if, if we had the right candidate who was energetic and personable and actually gather, got attention, I don't think it's impossible to win the presidential election. 
Um, but beyond all of that, you also have to have someone who's qualified because people care about qualification. And here's where you run into Dave Smith is energetic and personable and the kind of guy who could engender groundswell support, but he's wildly unqualified and would get no attention outside of our circle. Justin Amash is wildly qualified. We'll get a lot of attention outside of our circle, but he's uninspiring right. and doesn't bring more to the table than is already there supporting him. Right. And that's that's one thing that I think the Libertarian Party is, has, has suffered a lot from are people that are uninspiring. Um, you know, I've, I've watched some of these these candidates and some of these races and I've just... I just sit here and shake my head. I'm just like, you, you say nothing that makes me go, yeah, this guy wants to fight, you know? And <laughs> it's like, it's, it's kind of, it's always kind of this like milk toast style messaging. And maybe that's what sells to the public. I don't know, but, but it doesn't inspire me to go, thank you. Now we're actually talking about real liberty here. We're talking about yeah. real things that matter. And the only time I heard that in the last couple of years was um, Jacob Hornberger did uh, appeared on Tom Woods show before he announced. And he was just hammering the the State Department, the CIA, the military industry. And he was going hard. And I was like, yes, this guy's going into the paint like he's going to take the fight. And then by the time his his. He, he, you get into the middle of the race. It was kind of like, oh, okay, that that's that's what we got. Like he, it's like he burned Hornberger. out. No, that, I don't think Hornberger ever burned out. It's just I don't think Hornberger had much in the tank. Hornberger had one thing, and when he started to get, I'll call this the the touch of the tism of Hornberger, is he started to hyper focus on one thing. Uh, even in his consolation speech at the convention, we had a drinking game going on in our delegate hall with things on the board that people drink and I'm sitting there's the one one person in the room that doesn't drink watching all these assholes just get sloppy drunk because <laughs> Jacob Hornberger says war, warfare welfare was a drinking item and during his speech they drank several full beers because he just kept repeating <laughs> the words warfare welfare state warfare welfare state warfare welfare state and I'm sitting there like this is retarded um the first time I ever met Jacob Hornberger was at Porkfest. We knew he was running for president. He had not announced yet. He had made it known. It's like, ah, if Jeff Myron doesn't run, I'm going to run. But I had asked Jeff Myron a week before, and Jeff Myron says, I'm not going to run. So I'm like, oh, so Hornberger's running. Um, and so I go to his talk. He had a coffee and donuts. He thing. I pour a cup of coffee. He's starting talking, and it's... Over the course of 10 minutes, it went from about 100 people gathered around to like 20 people gathered around. So people just start walking off because he couldn't hold people's attention. And this was his echo chamber. He couldn't pe hold people's attention in his echo chamber. And then I don't even remember what he was saying. I just remember he was talking to me one-on-one. -on -one, and it was like mid-sentence. And I was so bored. I turned around and walked away before he finished his thought. Oh, man. I was hung over. Yeah, it was a festival, but like he couldn't hold attention to the point. I'm like, all right, I'm out on Hornberger. Yeah. Uh, which was unfortunate because when you read Jacob Hornberger, he sounds incredible. Yeah. Listen to Jacob Hornberger. You're like, 
Oh, I hear this guy every day on every other libertarian podcast. He just he doesn't sound any different than any other autistic libertarian who's just hammering a point, which is unfortunate. Um, but at the same time, like I have run for federal office twice here in New Hampshire, uh, a top top of the ticket, once for U.S. Congress, once for U.S. Senate. Both times there was a candidate running for governor. I outperformed the candidate running for governor by a two to one vote margin both times, even though we had the same voting pool, which meant half the people who voted for me did not vote for the libertarian for governor. Right. And people are always like, well, what is that case? Do you have any idea? I'm like, probably because every time we get invited to an event, it's never a libertarian event. It's an event with a bunch of other conservative voters and liberal voters. Y'all get up there to stare at a piece of paper and start reading. And it bores the shit out of people. You get on TV for your televised interview and you give just rehearsed responses instead of having a conversation with the correspondent who's interviewing you. And you sound fake and prepared. Right. And But meanwhile, everyone over at the Quill, the Libertarian Social Club, is watching your live interview like, yeah, that's so principled, right on point, yeah. And you're getting all sorts of positive feedback from people who are already going to vote for you, but in the meantime, losing everyone. Right. To date, my favorite public speaking engagement I've ever had was the uh, Protect Our Rights rally. Uh, following the Save Protect Our Lives rally for gun control, a couple kids organized a pro-Second Amendment march in Concord, New Hampshire, um, and I got invited to speak at that. They also invited Aaron Day, who was running for governor as a libertarian at the time, uh, in the primary. I forgot the event was happening. I had blanked it. Um, there, the night before... Me and a couple of friends, this is the Friday night. I'm like, oh, cool. I get the day off tomorrow. Let's do some LSD. <laughs> <laughs> Let's just have some fun here. Um, and in the morning, come to, in the morning, we're still actually pretty wired. And my campaign manager shows up to pick me up. I'm like, why are you here? He's like, you're giving a speech in an hour. I'm like, well, that sucks. You better start <laughs> driving. <laughs> <laughs> We get there, and as we get there, the Libertarian candidate for governor is sitting there reading his speech. It's, he had like an eight-page prepared speech, and just read blah, 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 <clears> blah, <throat> and the crowd is just dead. Like, nobody yeah. gives a shit. Yeah. I'm like, well, this is stupid. And my campaign manager's like, did you prepare anything? Where's your speech? I'm like, fuck, I didn't fucking write one. Cool. I walked up, and in a exhaustion and psychedelic-infused rant, went on for 20 minutes just ranting at the crowd as energetically as I could about how the Second Amendment didn't matter because you couldn't trust the government to follow its own rules. So a promise written on a piece of paper wasn't going to protect their rights, that they needed to do it themselves by not trusting government and stopping supporting politicians, and that, in fact, the people most harmed by gun control were minorities and the LGBTQ community, not privileged white men, and and did a mic drop. I remember doing a mic drop and started to walk away, <laughs> and I got a raging, like, holy shit, people screaming applause. And as I was walking away, people were running me down to talk to me because, like, that was incredible. I want to support you. How can we get involved in your campaign? That's awesome. Good. Because it wasn't reading, and it wasn't, it, it was saying radical and principled shit, but it was connecting with people. Well, right. And libertarians need to understand the only people that give a shit about libertarian philosophy are other libertarians. 
And I always say that about my damn po- my podcast. My podcast is not for libertarians. I don't do this podcast for libertarians. I do this podcast for blue collar guys trying to figure out what the fuck is wrong with our goddamn country. <laughs> that's what I do my podcast for. You know, that's who that's who my intended audience is. My intended audience is not other li- other autistic libertarians. I can be plenty autistic enough for both of us. I don't need you. I don't need a bubble here. I, I want to talk to people in real life that are having real problems and looking for real solutions to those problems. And I'm trying to interview people that are bringing forward real solutions to real problems and doing so in a way that, that anybody can utilize. Well, I think the best way to do that, and I think this is a fundamental problem with libertarianism in general, based on who we attract um, we tend to attract the hyper-intelligent, logical, slightly autistic crowd that thinks in numbers and everything has to make sense. And uh, there's a running joke that if the world were run by computer programmers, it would be a libertarian dystopia. <laughs> because everything would be perfectly logical. And I'll be sense. zeros and ones. <laughs> right. Um, but that's not how you connect to people. And right. libertarians have trouble connecting with people that aren't libertarian because they they don't they don't pose their problems and solutions as anything other than policy. People don't give two fucks about policy. People care about themselves. And what I have noticed aside from me, other people that I've noticed have the best success in reaching out to voters and in reaching out to your average person and bringing people into libertarianism have been veterans. And I, I think that is a fundamental, because we come to libertarianism in a fundamentally different manner, mm-hmm. where instead of being the logically hyper-inclined, like, we did this, blah, 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 we come as either victims or perpetrators of state violence. People who came seeking problems to solutions and finding problems to solutions, but also with real-world stories about how it affected not just us, but others. Mm -hmm. Uh, Whereas most libertarians, I hate to say it, it's been an incredibly privileged bunch of people that I've run into. These autistic kids who have never struggled for anything in their lives grew up in private schools and uh, no uh, no student loans to speak of because their parents were rich and could afford them and were born on third base and think they hit a triple. When that's not people. And Jim Bouchard... um, Libertarian Party in Maine, Jim Bouchard, he hosts the podcast Crazy Angry Libertarian, and he wrote a book by the same name. Uh, He pushed the theory in his book that nobody ever becomes a libertarian. There is no way you're ever going to convince someone to become a libertarian. But everyone has a series of experiences in their life that culminate in them realizing they always were a libertarian. Mm -hmm. Um, And if people haven't had those experiences themselves you're not going to be able to get libertarian policy and libertarian points across to them just by reciting a textbook you need to relay experience and those and people empathize with experience so when you can tell someone a story about how the state hurt you and what the solution was or how the state hurt others and you were a party to it and what the solution was it's something they can empathize with and they can vicariously share that experience um so like uh, for me it was being present during a terrorist attack was the start of it i was in boston on the day of the bombing at the boston marathon and i was working security 
<laughs> um, but like the follow up to that was like uh, the Boston bomb being a victim of a terrorist attack, watching people die, getting home, having my boots and pants covered in blood uh, from being in the middle of a terrorist attack didn't make me a libertarian. It made me even more of a hardcore conservative. And for the next few months, I was, we need to hunt these motherfuckers down. I'll flip the electric switch myself. I don't give two fucks. Lockdowns, what do you mean? We were detaining people because they looked Muslim in Boston that weekend. Mm -hmm. But a few months later, 4th of July, uh, I was the non-commissioned officer in charge of a security detachment of National Guard troops in Boston for 4th of July. And when I was walking the patrol with my lieutenant, a fresh lieutenant, kid's 22 years old, he graduated college three weeks prior, just got his commission, hasn't even been to officer school yet. So, like, he, green as they come, um, and one of the smartest officers I've ever met, because the first things he said was, O'Donnell, these are your guys, what are we doing? I'm like, great, <laughs> a lieutenant that knows how to listen. Uh, but we were walking a patrol to bring deliver food and water for lunch to our different checkpoints that we are going. And right underneath a mobile camera unit, because we had mobile camera units running facial recognition and scanning the, the crowds, a guy sits down in the middle of the sidewalk in a goddamn lawn chair blocking traffic and starts reading a book. And my lieutenant starts freaking out. He's like, you can't be there. We're going to have to detain you. Really? You have to move. And I'm just watching and just burst into tears laughing. I'm like, this is the funniest thing I've ever fucking seen. I can't imagine anything funnier in the moment. The lieutenant's like, what's so funny? I'm like, he's reading 1984. <laughs> and my lieutenant asked me, he's like, what does that mean? I then proceed to have to walk through and explain the plot of 1984 to a college-educated army lieutenant while we're in the middle of operating a lockdown on the city of Boston with mobile camera units and military security depriving the citizens of their rights. And after I finished it, I just look at the guy of the book, like, we're the fucking bad guys. And when I tell people that story about how I wasn't a victim of state violence, I, I wasn't seeking a solution to that but like i actually perpetrated the violence yeah i was an agent of the state who deprives people of their rights and tell the stories about the kids that we separated on the checkpoint at 8 p.m because we closed the bridge at 8 p.m and there were families separated um the death guy that we arrested because he couldn't communicate with uh with us uh and wouldn't let us search his bag because he didn't understand what we wanted because not we didn't have anyone who spoke sign language the bunch of people we detained on the subway because they looked middle eastern um the fact that we were iding people to allow them to move freely in the neighborhoods they lived in um the fact that we had people going door to door in watertown cambridge and boston uh demanding entry to search premises without warrant and confiscating firearms from those who were attempting to uh defend themselves when i explain these to people all of a sudden it clicks with them and they can empathize with being on the other end of that because i have the story to tell mm -hmm. um people like adam kakash and other veterans they have stories to tell that people can empathize with and i think it's very important that we try and pitch to libertarians in general to stop preaching philosophy and instead just tell your story yeah yeah what's uh what's the old saying people don't care how much you know until they know how much you care you know and it's it's that that human touch that so many libertarians are missing and libertarians are are famous for 
you know, throwing around memes of, uh, of the, the Facebook guy, I can't remember his name, Zuckerberg, you know, drinking water and zeros and ones under him, you know, and making fun of him. But that's how so many libertarians come across whenever they're talking, you know, about liberty, that it's, it's not actually anything attainable. It's all theory. It's all philosophy, you know, it's, yeah. And it's like, well, okay. Yeah. To a point, but how do you, how do you prescribe to the construction worker who's not going to sit down and read man economy and state or who's not, who's worried about raising his three kids and how he's going to pay bills. How are you going to, how are you going to ascribe to him, you know, your theory and your philosophy? He doesn't care about that. He's not worried about that. He's not trying to talk about that. He doesn't want to hear it. Hold on boogie. Sorry. My dog's attacking me. <laughs> damn near pulled my damn head off. Um, so, so yeah, you got to find a way to connect with these people on a human level, which is something that libertarians are notoriously bad at. I'm not even convinced most of them are human. <laughs> we might have unknowingly been assimilated. I am not sure. <laughs> it is possible. <laughs> we could just be a program. <laughs> Hey, after the past year, I'm perfectly willing to believe that. <laughs> Jesus, you're not lying. So let's get into that a little bit, because you did work with the healthcare industry for a while, mm -hmm. and uh, and you have a an interesting uh, tie to FEMA and all that good jazz. So you have a yeah. you, you have a, a unique perspective on everything that we have seen over the last year. So yeah, it, like I said, break it like, down my, for us. <laughs> my, my 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 libertarian moment, my realizing, oh shit, I'm wrong, came in realizing I'm the bad guy because it was after eight years in the military. It was after going through a college program and getting a degree in emergency management and homeland security. And what I did most of my consulting for were. Uh, I actually helped found a government agency as part of my internship, the Barnstable County Office of Emergency Management. Um, I did an uh, a lot of consulting for the Massachusetts Department of Emergency Management and FEMA, and a lot of uh, especially disaster response and recovery cost estimates for FEMA. Uh, and then after I kind of broke away from that, I'm like, well, fuck. My degree is useless now if I'm not willing to work for the government. Um, but I ended up landing in health insurance. Like I figured my emergency management background and business continuity background lent itself to an underwriting standpoint. And I could find a job in the underwriting field. And I found a company that was willing to uh, bring me on as an underwriter. Their hiring process, though, required everyone knowing every role. Um, so before I got to underwriting, I had to do six months in sales because like, you can't underwrite a product that you've never sold. I'm like that yeah. actually makes sense. Uh, six months later, they tell me it's like, you're never leaving sales. I'm like, why not? <laughs> like underwriting is going to be a five figure pay cut. I'm like I'm never leaving sales. <laughs> <laughs> I'm like, fine. But, uh, you know, I've spent the past five, five years, um, up until this year, intimately involved with Medicare, especially, mm -hmm. um, and helping consult for healthcare plans and plan design uh, for major health carriers and uh, distribution and enrollment for Medicare patients to help them find free market alternatives that they can opt out of Medicare uh, and into private health insurance to manage their Medicare benefits. Um, this year has been crazy um, because all of a sudden 
They tell me I'm not allowed to meet with anyone, which means I can't meet with most of my clients. And then they tell me, uh, oh, they're going to freeze healthcare and provide all this coverage through Medicare for all. I'm like, well, there goes my entire industry. Um, and then banning large gatherings for the foreseeable future, especially for people who are at risk. When 95% of my clients are over the age of 65, uh, I foresee I'm never doing another seminar to teach those people again because I'm never going to get them all in the same room. Um, whether or not the government could come out tomorrow and say, we lied, COVID was a hoax, it was all wrong. But the cultural impact is already there. People right. are never going to have these large gatherings again. Right. Especially people who think they're at risk. So this past year has been a lot of me saying, what the fuck am I doing? Um, <laughs> because it, essentially my industry evaporated overnight. Um, so it left me with a lot of free time where I've been working on cryptocurrency development. I've been working on um, running a merchandise outlet on the internet and selling uh, shirts on Snack Swag. Um, diving into social media, playing Magic the Gathering competitively for money on the internet. And I've entered the realm of sustainable self-employment in a really roundabout but forced manner. Um, but my experience in the healthcare industry has led me to like just wildly detest a lot of libertarians and the rhetoric surrounding COVID. Mm -hmm. <clears throat> um, because I look at things like they look at things like sure like discount the mask mandates we can all agree that mandates are bad but then they're like well masks are bad for you i'm like fuck you before the government mandated you had to wear one libertarians were the ones buying and selling most of the masks to avoid facial recognition <laughs> something that all of a sudden doesn't become bad because you don't like the person who supports it get fucked um but a lot of the underhyping like libertarians tried to really underhype COVID from the very get-go as it's nothing but a bad flu. From my experience in underwriting insurance uh, insurance for flu seasons, I'm gonna I'll go on a limb and say you are absolutely correct. COVID was nothing but a bad flu. But your average person does not understand or have any recognition of how close. The United States healthcare system comes to being overwhelmed every year with the normal flu. A bad secondary virus on top of the normal flu could have potentially caused millions of deaths in this country. Um, and so people going out saying it was fake, it was bad, like the lockdowns weren't necessary it really kind of pissed me off um, because on one hand, I agree. The lockdowns were fundamentally unnecessary. All that was necessary was providing people accurate information. Right. And early on, the CDC was actually doing a very good job of providing people with accurate information. Um, here's what we know about the virus. Here's who's working on vaccines. Here's its transmission rates. Here's its variability rates. Uh, here are precautions you can take. And instead of following the advice, libertarians writ large discounted the advice as fake news and propaganda because of its source. People were so autistically against the government that when good advice came from the government, they weren't willing to hear it. Um, and I think a lot, I, I wondered to myself, 
how much of the unnecessary lockdowns and mandates could have been avoided if people weren't so oppositionally defiant to the good advice they got at the beginning. Well, you know, a lot of, like I didn't even pay attention to what was going on with COVID. <laughs> I guess it was until I guess it was in April, late, late April, Texas closed its borders to Louisiana. And I was like, what the fuck? Is, what is going on? Like Very Texas I, thing to do. Yeah, I was like, <laughs> this is really strange. You know, and as a as a trucker, I'm driving across those borders all the time. Now, we didn't have to go through the checkpoints like yada but any any passenger vehicle that was coming into texas from louisiana was getting stopped and they were getting checked and i was like what are they doing and i had had a friend of mine who worked in the medical industry said I, i'm surprised you're not paying attention to this i'm like it's a virus what am i going to do about it you know like i don't, I don't know like I, i'm just going to do my job and go on about my business i don't really care about it and um he goes no it's really bad and I go, okay, I'll, I'll, I'll read some, I'll read some stuff. And I read some stuff and I was like, okay, well, it sounds like a, a bad flu. Now see, I was unaware at the time that the, that the hospitals are so minimalistic and, and try to cut costs that they don't keep an overstock of beds and all these facilities. Right. Like I didn't, that never even crossed my mind, you know? So I'm like, okay, like it's a bad flu. We deal with the flu every year. I'm sure we'll be fine. You know? And, and he goes, give it 10 days. Well, luckily, after those 10 days, nothing bad happened, you know, but the damn thing didn't go away. And that's when it really started catching my attention. I was like, hold yeah. on, like this cold isn't going away. <laughs> like These people are obsessed about this thing. What is this? You know, and and then I saw people like put on masks and turn into zombies. And that's what put me against masks, because I'm like, I don't want to be a zombie, like no matter what happens. You know, and, and that's what really, I, I was just kind of like going through my day. I remember walking into a, a tobacco store and I really, was again, I still wasn't paying that much of attention to it. And I walk in and I'm going to buy me some, I'm going to buy me some tobacco and, uh, cause I smoke and I smoke a lot. And this guy goes, you got to put on a mask. I said, in here? And he goes, <laughs> yeah. I said, do you think I really give a shit about my lungs? I'm about to buy cigarettes. <laughs> and he kind of and he kind of stopped and he was like good point you know <laughs> no, I, so there's a lot of things that come out of like people like again still libertarian conspiracy theorists keep pointing to shit like well there was no flu this year you're right there was virtually no flu this year we don't we, I, I made a, i made a joke a while back the only death yeah. the media won't tell you about is the death of the flu right but nobody's asking how that happened. The yeah. conspiracy theorists are just like, oh, they're misreporting every flu case as a COVID case. That's not happening at all. We've successfully killed the flu because the flu is a very weak virus and people started washing their hands. <laughs> you have no idea what basic sanitation can do for human health. <laughs> when people are so unwilling to deal with basic sanitation, um, and polio was eradicated not just because of the vaccine, but because running water became prevalent in every yeah. household. In ground plumbing, <laughs> like <laughs> the bubonic plague has like five to ten cases a year. N not because we have been inoculated against it, but because we have plumbing. 
Yeah. Like, shit like that. The flu went away when people started washing their hands, socially distancing during the winter, wearing masks, and not using cash. That was the biggest one. Um, cash is one of the biggest vectors of disease and viral spread in the world. Uh, cash is among the dirtiest shit in the world. I did a brief stint when I first got out of the army as an ATM technician for Garda. Um, I got sick constantly. And I was constantly, like, I had a giant tub of hand sanitizer in my truck. Wore gloves when I was working on it. It doesn't matter. When you're handling $3 million a day in small bills, you will get sick. Because cash transmits disease more than any other vector in modern society. Um, And people stopped using cash during this pandemic because there was a shortage and everyone got forced to use digital transactions. Uh, People were shopping online instead of shopping in person. Um, I'd like, I wish cryptocurrency could take the credit, but it can't. (laughs) The Federal Reserve failing to print enough money actually takes the credit because there was more money being spent that was in circulating supply so people didn't have access to cash. Yeah, um, which is just a recipe for hyperinflation. But anyways, <laughs> <laughs> um, but those kind of things, like I, I, I am, I am afraid. Well, I'm not afraid. Actually, I believe COVID nineteen is going to become an endemic virus. Um, which we're going to move past the pandemic stage. It's just going to be a permanent thing, like the flu, where every winter we have a spike of cases. And then the spring we start moving on. Mm. Um, whether or not our healthcare system adapts to, as people get more comfortable with that reality, starting to get lax on washing their hands, socially distancing, wearing masks when appropriate. And like I'm not saying wearing masks is always appropriate. If you're outside, there's no fucking reason to wear a mask. But you know, at the height of flu season, wearing a surgical mask when you go into the grocery store isn't the worst idea. Mm-hmm. Um, anyways, COVID or no COVID, it's not the worst idea if you have any understanding of the way viruses spread. Um, and I feel like once people start to get more comfortable, there is going to run the risk that we're going to have a bad COVID year and a bad flu year together mm-hmm. that would overwhelm our hospital system. And the only reason our hospital system is so prone to being overwhelmed is because of government. And that's something people really need to look at Um, because it's not just government mandates on your life and when you can go to work and whatnot. The government, like if you want to build a hospital, you need permission from the government and you have to prove need. You have to go to a government board and prove that there needs to be a hospital there. And it cannot be closer. It cannot be too close to another hospital. And don't, uh, don't the other hospitals in the area have to approve you? Yep. Yeah. That, that's that's insane. Like right. your competitors have to approve that they need the competition, right? Because there is no competition. That's the shittiest part about it. Um, the me- me- once Medicare became a thing, once Blue Book registering became a thing, and insurance underwriting became so micromanaged by the Patient Protection and Affordable Care Act, there is no such thing as a for-profit hospital anymore, um, if they take insurance at all. Because they're not allowed to set their own prices. They're not allowed to set their own wages. Right. Like doctors are paid what doctors are paid. Interns are paid what interns are paid. Nurses are paid whatever the union negotiates. That's the same across virtually every hospital. What they're allowed to charge for a procedure is the same. 
across virtually every hospital. There is no competition. They cannot make a profit because the government dictates what comes in and what goes out for them. Um, it's called the Medicare assignment. Medicare keeps a book of prices for every service and tells hospitals what they are allowed to charge for them. So when people complain about getting a $10,000 bill for a procedure, it's not because the hospitals and the pharma, well, the pharmaceutical companies are evil. We'll get into that. But it's not because the hospitals are overbilling you. It's because Medicare told the hospital that's how much it costs. Um, if you have private insurance, your private insurance is allowed to negotiate a lower price. Right. So, but Medicare isn't. Why do you think we're going bankrupt? Because Medicare says something costs 10 grand. And when Medicare says something costs 8 grand, the doctor is only allowed to bill 8 grand for it, 80% with 20% uh, non recoverable. Mm -hmm. um, and then Medicare will only pay about 3 grand of it because Medicare is broke and doesn't have money. Right. And Medicare will take about 18 months to pay that three grand after they get the bill. So hospitals have to float all these expenses for years at a time before they recover the money mm -hmm. from the government, which means they have to increase their prices on non-essential services to cover the bills. Until yeah, they which is eventually why you pay. get a bill for $14,000 for a one night stay, you know? Right. Yeah. So, you know, and this is something I had talked to a, a buddy of mine about on a, a previous episode, uh, I guess last year, last year or the year before. And he was telling me and, you know, being in Texas and he's from Texas, he's a mm -hmm. he's a public defender in Texas. And we were talking about the, the law on private membership associations. Right. And where you pay, you know, kind of like a gym membership to a to a private practitioner. And, and then you can go see them as often as possible. And that covers like the majority of your bills. You know. services. Yes. Yeah. So the, the, that used to be incredibly common. They used to be called a concierge doctor. Every small town in the country had one. They would do house calls. Yeah. Because they could afford to pay their bills off of that. Some but of them will even do Skype, you know, like, like Skype yeah. with you and, and talk to you yeah. about like what's going on. But for the large part, that service is not considered credible health care anymore by the Patient Protection and Affordable Care Act. Thanks, Obama. Mm. Well, so, like, thanks, thanks, insurance companies. Let's be real here. Thanks, Mitt Romney. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so it's weird. So a lot of people blame insurance companies. There's one insurance company you can blame in general. It's Kaiser Permanente. Mm. But insurance companies as whole writ large in the industry were the biggest opponents of Obamacare. Um, in fact, there's been dozens of insurance companies that have outright gone out of business since Obamacare went into play. Uh, Anthem Blue Cross used to operate in all 50 states. Uh, they're, on, they're down to about 30 states right now because their state affiliates keep going bankrupt yeah. and out of business because they can't compete. Uh, Great Northwest Health Insurance went out of business. Rocky Mountain Healthcare went out of business. They weren't able to offer the plans anymore. Yeah. And there are areas of the country where people until Trump waived the penalty, people were getting fined by the IRS for not having insurance because no insurance companies offered insurance in their area. Yeah. Because the insurance companies that did all went out of business. Well, you know what's crazy too is in Texas, they were waiving they were waiving those fines. They were like you don't have to pay them because I had insurance up until they passed that and then <laughs> I let my insurance go because I couldn't afford $400 a month. I was like, okay, right. we just we just went from eighty dollars a month 
for me and 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 uh, my dependents, mm -hmm. and it went from eighty dollars a month to over four hundred and thirty dollars a month. I was like, I can't pay that. I can't afford it. So I just stopped, I just canceled my insurance, and I would go f file my taxes, and they'd be like, okay, you're gonna have um, a fee for this. Why didn't you have insurance this year? I was like, I couldn't afford it, and they were like, oh, okay, well, that we'll waive that fee then. Right, and, and people think like the notion Democrats constantly campaign on universal health care because these problems exist. Democrats are never going to give you universal health care specifically because Democrats created these problems to exist as a campaign point to campaign on. My father is a Teamster member. My father's been a Teamster for 40 fucking years. Um, he's no longer a trucking, no longer on the roads because of his back. He's in the warehouse. Mm -hmm. um, in 2016, during the primary, he got instructions from his union to vote for Hillary Clinton. Like they in demanded everybody vote against Bernie Sanders. Absolutely not. Because, and the reason given through the grapevine was um, to the union officers, one of them told my father, if Bernie passes universal health care, the unions will no longer have anything to provide their members and will lose their political power. Yeah. That's insane. Because that's the only benefit of being a Teamster nowadays is the Teamster provides every member of the union health insurance. Right. So yeah. if you're not, so if universal health care gets passed, the largest labor union in the country would cease to exist. Yeah. Well, I was a, I was, I was union years ago. I worked, worked in the carpenters union down in, in Louisiana and uh, they provided insurance for me and all my dependents. I didn't pay a dime. Right. They, they provided it. You know, and I was like, that that's a hell of a deal, you know, and like as much as I hate, I think the Teamsters are a largely evil organization for how they handle politics and mm -hmm. what they do with their membership dues and lobbying and their history of being wrapped up in organized crime and racketeering, which is all a wide open book. Um, there's there's a long history of Teamsters union local presidents going to prison for racketeering. <laughs> yeah. Mm -hmm. uh, it's, it's just an open book of their crimes when it comes to handling their members insurance they will fight tooth and nail to take care of their members because that's the service they provide that's what they are to their members my stepmother is on dialysis the united states government is attempting to force my stepmother onto medicare even though my father has teamsters insurance for him and her at no cost the United States government has told Blue Cross they are not allowed to pay for her treatment. That's incredible. Yeah, and my dad has union mem union officers on the phone screaming and losing their goddamn minds at Blue Cross for not paying for it. And Blue Cross sends back a letter. It's like, we tried to pay for it. Here's the check. It was returned. That's fucking insanity, man. That's just... Yeah. I mean, that's just, uh, it's evil. I mean, it's uh, like, how else do you describe that? Right. The, the, the crux of Medicare, there's, there's a little addendum in the Medicare Reauthorization Act that says that the United States government's Medicare and Medicaid system is the only health insurer or health provider that is allowed to provide kidney care in the United States. So anybody who's on dialysis is forced onto Medicare. A private insurance is not allowed to cover kidney care. It ends up costing people on dialysis tens of thousands of dollars a year in co-payments after Medicare to get their dialysis. God forbid they save up for 20% of $3 million for a kidney transplant. Meanwhile, 
In South America, you can purchase an at-home dialysis machine for $3,000, and its total upkeep costs to run for the year is 200 bucks. Jesus. Well, and you're not even mentioning, like you said earlier, I mean, yeah. they, they mark down the prices 80%, you know, and then they only pay, you know, a third of that. So how much is it not only costing the patients, but it's also costing the doctors so much money, you know, in order just to stay in operation and to continue to provide these services? Now, I'm not, I'm not sure down in Texas, Midwest, um, or Southwest, if it's the case, but here in New England, there are no private practice doctors anymore. And, and that is a change in the past 10 years, because right. I remember growing up, there would be doctor's office here, doctor's office there, small, like little office ones, like you could mistake it for a law office or an accounting right. firm where a PCP would do a private practice. There is no private practice anymore. I cannot find them anywhere because the doctors can't afford to keep the lights on mm. under the Medicare scheme. So they all have to join the conglomerates. For, fortunately, we do still um, have private practices, but a lot of a lot of uh, patient care is going to like your Quest Diagnostics and stuff like that. Right. Um, where especially with these these companies like new hiring, doing your your uh, medical testing. exam. Yeah, when you're doing your physical and stuff for for trucking, it's all Quest Diagnostics. I mean, that's just they they basically have a monopoly over that market. Yeah, it's and and to be fair, like the idea behind Quest Diagnostics is an incredibly free market idea. Mm. We're gonna put together a diagnostic. Like we're not doing healthcare. We're not doing fucking PCP. We're not doing your actual medical care. We're just testing. Just testing. That's yeah. all we're going to do. And we're going to get so good and so efficient at it that we can do it cheaper than the doctors. So they'll refer you to us. Right. Right. That's an incredibly free market principle and a free market idea. Um, and it's more than just Quest. We actually have a couple things other than Quest up here in New England that do the same thing. Mm -hmm. But if it weren't for the insurance rackets that are perpetuated by Medicare and government regulation, there'd be dozens of them instead of two. Right. Yeah. Um, it, it, but you would have a private practice doctor. That private practice doctor might have a pick of four different imaging clinics for you to go get your MRI at, and you can shop around for price. You you need a cholesterol test. Okay, Quest, Diagnostic XYZ, like which one's get the lowest price for you? You can shop right. around. Um, the only, to my knowledge, Oklahoma is the only place where you can do free market healthcare in the country right now. And even that is just one guy saying fuck you to the insurance companies and the government and running a hospital with prices on the window. Well, there's a there's a guy in there's a guy in Beaumont, Beaumont, Texas, that or there was a few years ago. I, I, I assume he's still there. But yeah, so there are a few of them out there. I know there's one in I believe in Kansas, in Wichita, Kansas also. Uh, so there's a few of them out there that are like no we're not we're not playing this you know racket with you people you know we're gonna we're right. gonna continue to practice medicine we're not interested in your scam so yeah and the, the oklahoma surgery center they do it with really high-end procedures yeah um and like i've known a couple people who have gone to the oklahoma surgery center they don't live in oklahoma they just shopped around and found out that it would be cheaper to fly to oklahoma get surgery get a hotel for three weeks of recovery while doing their physical therapy at the surgery center and then fly back then to pay the copay to get it done in Boston. Jesus. 
and it's great. It, it's unfortunate because like we we have some of the best hospitals in the world in Boston. Yeah. But Boston, Massachusetts is one of the most regulated states in the yeah. imaginable. Uh, and so it, it, I am under no impression that in a free market, Mass General, Boston Children's would only get better. Um, yeah. But, but as it is, their hands are tied with what they can do. So much of the focus of my podcast is to point out abuses of power and how bad things have gotten and the direction in which we're heading as a society. And it can be a real black pill. I've partnered up with Richard Grove to offer my listeners an opportunity to sign up to his autonomy course. Uh, The autonomy course is designed for people looking for solutions, people that want to shape their own future, people that are not willing to be at the behest of large corporations or the United States government or the banking system. The autonomy course is designed for those of you who wish to have complete control of the reins of your life, who are looking to be successful, that to thrive and not just survive, to provide for your family by utilizing your existing skills and learning how to market and sell those skills in order to be your own boss or learn new skills in order to leverage that into a new career opportunity. So if there's a job out there you've been trying to get or you've been wishing you could get, but you just don't have the skills for it, the autonomy course is the place for you to start to learn how to land that position, to learn how to market yourself better, to gain confidence, and to be surrounded by a community of like-minded people that will encourage you and help you along the way. So use my affiliate links and go check out the autonomy course. It could be right for you. Right. Yeah. All right. Well, you said you wanted to mention the pharmaceutical companies and I got to get back on the road. So let's let's get into those real quick because I read an interesting article that I missed last year and uh, I ran into it the other day and I was like, how the fuck did I miss this? This is right in my wheelhouse. So, come to find out, Moderna is joint owned by NIH. And so, uh, half... It's way worse than that. <laughs> is it? Tell me. Yeah. Okay. Uh, former chairman of the board of directors of Moderna. No, mind you, let's start back. What is Moderna? Mode RNA <laughs> is the name of the company. They have existed for 10 years. They were a small research firm based in Boston. Um, they had less than 40 employees. Basically, it was a bunch of like research geneticists with a CRISPR and a hobby. And they got Series A funding to fund their little lab to experiment with because they had an idea that RNA technology could be the next wave in immunology. Years out years out they were doing base level research the past 10 years they've run a dozen or so clinical trials on potential vaccines that they've been trying to develop and every single one of them failed for safety every single one every development they have ever come out of moderna has been rejected for long-term safety concerns yep. um 
they were a nothing burger company. They weren't even a blip on the radar. They had never put a single drug to market. And then Trump established Operation Warp Speed, the public-private partnership uh, to fund research development into the vaccines using NIH funds. He appointed as the director of Project Warp Speed the former chairman of the board of Moderna, who owned 20% of the outstanding stock in Moderna. And when he took the position, he did not sell his stock and dec or declare a conflict of interest. Elizabeth Warren, of all of the evil people in the world, Elizabeth Warren was the one who demanded he sell his stock or resign from Operation Warp Speed because it was a conflict of interest and it was bad all around. He did neither. He continued to direct Operation Warp Speed as an appointment of, appointment, appointee of Donald Trump and funneled hundreds of millions of dollars of NIH money into Moderna, buying out his own stake for $40 million of taxpayer money <laughs> to fund the development of the vaccine, which was then approved with no clinical trial under an emergency authorization. This guy, and, and see, this is the kind of crap, these people will never go to jail for shit like this. And that's what really is so ridiculous. Because it's not illegal. That's the bad problem. It is not illegal what he did. Well, it would be illegal for you to do it. It would be illegal for me to do it. It was no. not illegal for him to do it. No, no. All, all he did was not sell his stock. He chose to not exercise an option until he was no longer an employee of the company. Perfectly legal. If I had Moderna stock and got offered the Project Warp Speed job, it would have been perfectly legal for me. Um, it should amount to insider trading. That, that's it, what I was thinking they would try to charge you or I with. It would have amounted to insider trading had he sold it at market instead of exercising an option and selling it back to the company. Ah, uh, got you. Uh. <laughs> <laughs> it's all in the details. Yeah, yeah. So, But to be fair, I'm also not a, the biggest opponent of insider trading. I made a lot of money on predictit.org, betting on the libertarian primary while I was texting the candidates. So when are you going to drop out? <laughs> I'm not against insider trading. I'm just against yeah. the fact that Congress is allowed to in, right. it, it, be involved in insider uh, trading, and we're not. But that's not the worst part of the pharmaceutical industry. That's the worst part of Moderna. Is the fact that the fact that there is a Moderna vaccine being distributed was one single individual's wealth scheme, um, and that terrifies me. Yeah. <laughs> so. Uh, the biggest problem I have with the pharmaceutical industry writ large is intellectual property protections and patenting of medicine. Yeah. I do not believe it should be legal to patent medicine. Right. Um, I understand a protection of profit or protection of research and development, whatever. Cap it at fucking 10 years. You have 10 years to make your money back, and then that drug goes to the market. Let people compete making generics of the drug. Instead, we have a system where a company develops a drug, puts it to market. When their patent expires, they tweak one little thing in the presentation compound and extend the patent for eternity. They don't change the function of the drug. 
Um, they're essentially issuing a generic drug at that point, but charging out the ass. Insulin has been around for hundreds of years. Insulin cost 10 to 20 cents a vial, and it's being sold for hundreds of dollars for a week's supply. Yeah. It is criminal what the United States government is allowing corporate monopolies to do to people who need something to live. And this is my socialist stint. I would not be opposed to United States Congress going in writ large and revoking all patents for all medicine and telling these companies to go get fucked. (laughs) Um, Beyond like, if I had it, my I don't I don't look at that as socialist because all, all these patents are all intellectual property is is government protection of these monopolies, you know? Right. So you're you're really just saying get out of the fucking way, <laughs> get the government out of the way, right? And, and like beyond just the competition of forcing AstraZeneca and and like other companies to compete with each other with the same drugs, which will inherently drive prices down. A lot of these drugs are so cheap and so simple; it's not expensive to make them. It opens the one for innovation to allow other companies to jump up and make them. I, I would further like drop the goddamn import bans on medicines like there's no way that we can sit here and justifiably say that the medical regulations in canada are so much more lax than they are here that canadian drugs aren't as safe as american drugs it's bullshit allow the people making inhalers in canada to sell them in the united states force the price down on both sides of the border. Well, the same thing for Germany, France, the United Kingdom, Spain. These are all modern industrial countries with manufacturing standards that are imposed not just by government, but by industry. And they're operating on the same formulas and manufacturing models. Allow a truly global market of medicine instead of people dying from insulin rationing. Wasn't uh wasn't Trump trying to do that at, at one point? But everyone in Congress owns stock in pharmaceutical companies. Right, right. But no, I'm just asking because I yes. remember he gave this like speech about how he was going to to break up these bands and uh, that you may not see him for a while because there's going to be some very powerful people very angry at him. You know, I don't know if you remember yeah. that. It was it was it was like it was really crazy. It's absolutely absurd what they do and how, like, the pharmaceutical industry just pisses me off. Um, And it all goes back to, like, it wasn't always this way. Right. It it wasn't this way until government started getting involved in healthcare altogether. You really want to break things down. The HMO Act of 1973, which was passed, like, lobbied into law by Ted Kennedy and is what started all of this because it created these things called HMOs. Well, it's kind of ironic. He's the most outspoken against the the current pharmaceutical industry at this moment, too. Like he's he's got that podcast where he goes off on 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 the pharmaceutical industries and well, you can't sue them for for vaccinations and yada yada. He's and it's like, well, you're the one you're the one who started all this shit. <laughs> yeah. So the. Again, that's another like really misrepresented facet by libertarians. Oh, vaccine manufacturers have liability. Yeah, but your doctor doesn't. Your doctor has access to 
um, all of the potential side effects of the vaccine and is supposed to make the judgment call of whether or not it's good for you. If you if you have an adverse reaction, you don't sue the manufacturer. You sue the doctor who prescribed it. Yeah, you don't you don't sue the sue the gun company for the kid that right. shot up a school. Right. The manufacturers are actually generally pretty transparent about side effects. Yeah. Um, it, it's up to doctors and patients to make a determination. But doctors are the ones who inherently hold liability for that decision, which is why the manufacturer is exempt from liability. Right. Not because of some grand conspiracy, but because you can't sue Ford because a drunk driver ran, uh, hit you, and you can't sue Remington because a psycho stole a gun and shut up a school. Mm-hmm. Like, yeah. it, it's the same principle. Well, right. And, and some of these doctors just do not give a damn. Some of them just don't care. Like, I remember my, when my wife moved here from, she's from South Africa. So when she moved here, she got her green card. She had to get a bunch of vaccines. There was all kinds of shit they had to do. I don't even know. We were there for like two hours and she was getting poked and prodded and all kinds of shit. And she ended up with a vaccine injury. And it wasn't, it wasn't something super bad. And she didn't have like this horrible reaction where she ended up in the hospital. But she had a, mu- she had a muscle problem where in her shoulder for probably three years she could she couldn't like grip really good with her hand and and her arm bothered her a lot and she would call the doctor and tell them all the time like this is what's going on and they're like all right well ice it take ibuprofen this that and the other and let us know how it's doing in a in a week or so and she would call them and call them and they just kept telling her to do the same thing she finally just gave up on it she was just like it's not even worth calling them because they just keep telling me the same shit you know, they're not giving yeah. me any real solution to the problem, you know, so so she just quit calling him. But, yeah, she dealt with it for about three years. Her her arm bothered her. Yeah, in that case, across the board, like, we, we've entered a period where doctors no longer treat patients. They treat symptoms mm-hmm. um, because that's what they're taught to do. Yeah. That's what they're taught to do, and that's what they're financially incentivized to do. Right. Because if a doctor goes rogue and decides to treat a patient instead of treating the symptoms, they don't get paid. They have a six-figure student loan to pay off, and a mortgage and, and rent on their office. <laughs> right. Yep. Talk about talk about it, and it's just a circular argument. It always comes back to the government intervention, whether it's into the universities or into the medical, you know, yeah, aspect of our lives. There's always this intervention that's just creating this this life, you know, more more expenses, more expensive, more more expensive. And it's just like, okay, all these regulations and all this stuff, just it just creates this circular entity where... I was uh, reading a book last night, fiction, a book called Children of the Nameless. Um, it's a Magic the Gathering book. Um, but <laughs> one of the characters said something that like, kind of rings to me here. When he's arguing with another character, he says, there's no such thing as good or bad people, only responses to incentives. Like, we, we don't have good doctors and bad doctors. We don't have good executives bad executives we don't have good congressmen bad congressmen we just have people responding to the obvious incentives in the hyper-regulated environment that we've allowed government to create and people who could be good people are so heavily incentivized to do the wrong thing yeah sam g and Kana actually uh had a quote similar to that after uh after he found out kennedy was assassinated and he said this should this should prove to the entire world that there are no such thing as black hat black hats and white hats there are only those acting in their own self-interest right yeah so, but hey man i do got to go do you want to plug everything you got 
your book, everything. Let everybody know where to find you. Uh, I'm most active on Twitter. It's at O'Donnell number four NH on Twitter. Uh, I shit post constantly there. Uh, I got a coin tree with a bunch of links to my Facebook, um, my uh, read.cash blog, my noise.cash blogs. Uh, and everything. Uh, Facebook is facebook.com backslash Justin for Liberty. And if you want to check out the merch store, like I say, I like to advertise it's the best Liberty merch store on the internet. www.snackswag.com Alright, man. That's awesome. I'll also put all those links in the show notes. Pick and choose, well, it's a game that was made for you to lose. It doesn't really matter how many times, it's the same old worn out story, same old lines. There are one dirty fingers in hypocrisy, bragging on their feet to mediocrity again. Never really making any kind of change, but they keep on getting reelected, and I find that strange. And that's why I say fuck them, don't feed them, cause we don't even need them. I never celebrate the tyrants out of taking our freedoms. Yeah, I said fuck them, don't feed them, cause we don't even need them. I never celebrate the tyrants out of taking our freedoms. Time.